What's driving excess cardio deaths? COVID, mRNA jabs, lockdowns, NHS overload, or statins are really the answer. Both the UK and the US are reporting record-breaking excess deaths, mainly from cardiovascular disease. Why? That is the big question. What's going on and what can you do to reduce your risk? I invite back Dr. Tess Lowry from the World Council for Health to enlighten us lighten us on all things COVID related and Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, expert in all things cardiovascular and cholesterol related to explore these topics with you and point the way forward. Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, a GP who lives and works for the NHS in Cheshire, is author of, among other books, The Clot Thickens and The Great Cholesterol Con. Dr. Tess Laurie is the director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy and uh, author of over 80 published research papers and is committed to improve the quality of healthcare globally through rigorous research as a founder member of the World Council for Health. Malcolm, I'm delighted to have you back on my podcast. You are my go-to doctor for uh, heart disease. There is now acknowledgement of a big increase in excess deaths post the pandemic, and the finger is pointing at cardiovascular deaths in particularly, presumably heart attacks, as the main culprit. What are your thoughts about what could be driving this? Well, this is uh, thanks anyway for inviting me back, Patrick. Hopefully I can uh, provide some enlightenment. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question um, which is complex to answer. Um, I think, as you said, there's a number of ideas going around. One is that um, especially in the UK, it's because our cell service is overwhelmed and ambulances are, are not reaching people fast enough. However, we're seeing the same effect in other countries like uh, the Netherlands and the US where they don't have these problems. So it's difficult to suggest that this is driving it. Then we have obviously COVID-19 itself. Uh, in fact, when I was writing my book, The Clock Thickens, COVID-19 arrived and um, people were astonished to find that people suffering from what was Called the respiratory disease was causing cardiovascular disease. At the time, I was looking at influenza A and various other viral and bacterial infections that drove um, cardiovascular disease. And it seemed to me that exactly the same process was going on here. We had a, a virus that infects cardiovascular cells, endothelial cells that line uh, artery and vein walls. And, uh, and because it gets in through a receptor that these cells have called the two receptor. Um, and then once the virus is inside the cell, the immune system comes along and tries to kill that cell or the virus itself within the cell kills the cell. So it came as no surprise to find we were seeing an increase in cardiovascular deaths, heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots in strange places where you would normally not expect to see them. So there's definitely an element of the viral infection itself causing this. Quite how long after infection it should be increasing the risk is, is a bit unclear. Uh, then, then we have the, the latest uh, thing about uh, vaccines. Now, again, when I was looking at the, the vaccines um, early on, uh, there was a concern that we were stimulating the, the human cells to produce um, the spike protein part of the, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And, and a lot of the research had shown that it was the spike protein itself that was triggering blood clotting and damage to endothelial cells, myocytes, parasites, which are in the heart, 
So, uh, so I think that there was concern there. I was concerned that this might be triggering some increase in cardiovascular disease. It's very difficult to see the figures here because, unfortunately, there, there's a great deal of, I'll use the word, obfuscation going on about this. And, and more recently, uh, um, Chris Whitty and others have stated it's because patients are not getting enough statins, which is why they're all dying of heart disease. I think I'd like to just knock that one on the head as quickly as possible. Um, the vast majority of people who would take statins would be in what we call primary prevention group or low risk group. And there hasn't, there's only been one study that's demonstrated an increase uh, or, or protection from overall and cardiovascular mortality from statins. Otherwise, there is no protection um, in these from statins. So to suggest that thousands and thousands of people are dying because they're not taking statins is, is incomprehensibly ridiculous, in my opinion. I think that covers my initial thoughts anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very important point to make, that what you're saying, and I know we covered this previously in, in our podcast, is that statins given to people who do not have pre-existing cardiovascular disease have no um, evidence of reducing risk of uh, cardiovascular mortality. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Um, so, and these figures are known to people like Chris Whitty. They must be, or maybe they aren't known to him. So, you know, for him to start coming out with this, it's almost, the problem is that almost everything that people say at the moment with regard to death rates or heart disease or anything, it's got this shroud of, you mustn't say anything that could possibly point the finger at COVID or COVID vaccination. So we get these, the tendency, my tendency is unfortunately to look at these pronouncements and just think, well, this is just the party line, isn't it? You're, you're just coming out with the party line. We need a bit more than this. There are, there are people out here who are not stupid. You need to look at these things and ask the questions. I mean, one thing that I've not discussed is just when COVID started, I looked at um, the risks of lockdown and uh, the psychosocial upset this would cause, and I was very concerned that we might see a rise in cardiovascular disease anyway, because um, I looked specifically at when the Soviet Union broke up in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the countries that were in the Soviet Union, such as Lithuania, saw a, saw a, two, sorry, a, a, a two-fold increase in death rates from cardiovascular disease, which is almost entirely considered due to the sort of stresses, the breakdown, the economic stresses, the breakup of a loss of jobs, financial worries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and, and this was seen in countries like Lithuania, uh, Latvia, Romania, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Russia itself to a huge extent. So I was very concerned that, that if we locked everything down and lots of people lost their jobs or they lost their social interactions and children couldn't meet with friends, etc. This would be a damaging in and of itself. So I wrote a blog and I did actually predict we would see this jump in cardiovascular disease deaths, which we have seen. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm not putting everything on. I think there's a number of factors, but mm -hmm. I think one of the factors to me is clearly the, the gigantic social upheaval and, and damaging actions that were taken in lockdown, which I think we're now seeing come through. In fact, the National for Office for National Statistics themselves predicted that we would see 17,000 excess deaths per year for the five or six years following lockdown due to the economic damage done. That was the government's own figures at one point. I don't know if it still is, but they definitely said that. 
So it's, uh, you know, there's clearly this big stress factor um, affecting uh, so many people in so many different ways. But to sort of understand some of the factors, maybe uh, it'd be interesting because generally, if we go back to the 80s, cardiovascular, um, cardiovascular deaths have pretty much decreased since the 80s, although that decrease has rather leveled off in the last decade. Um, I think we've already covered did this have anything to do with statins? Uh, but what what generally has it been that reduces our cardiovascular risk that might have changed during lockdown? Well, the primary thing, I remember looking at a study from uh, South Africa where it showed that men who were suffering from uh, financial stresses uh, were 13 times more likely to have a cardiovascular event Mm. in the next five years than men who were not suffering from yeah. economic stresses. Um, now, you would say, so how, how is worrying about your bank balance going to cause you to drop dead of a heart attack? It's actually quite a, quite a uh, it's not a hugely complex story, but essentially put it this way, if you're constantly worried about your job, your finances or whatever, a negative, what we'll call it negative psych psychological stress, this, the body's unable to distinguish this effectively between that and, um, and and a lion in the background ready to jump on you. There's still this flight or fight response that's triggered. And if that keeps being triggered all the time and your worries are constant, then essentially um, your, what you call your neurohormonal system, the nerves and, and hormones and everything that control the balance start, start to break down. It's a very interesting work done in Sweden by, by a researcher called Bjorn Torp and Rosen, who who actually in the 1980s, early 90s, looked at heart disease in Lithuanian men and Swedish men. It's called the Livcordia study. At the time, the Lithuanian men had five times the rate of heart disease as the Swedish men. So when they looked at the standard risk factors, heart, um, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, smoking levels, blood, blah, they were all pretty much the same. But one thing that did characterize the Lithuanian men was they had higher levels of what they called negative stress when they were subjected to a, a, a stress test where you then measure the cholesterol, the cholesterol, the cortisol levels in response to a stress test. The Lithuanian men showed a very dysfunctional picture. Uh, and, and, and really, um, there was clearly damage to their, if you like, their, their natural flight or fight system. And this was really the only major difference they could find. And, and when that happens, what happens is, if you are ready to fight or flee, then your blood clotting system is activated because you don't want to bleed when you're attacked. Your blood pressure tends to go up because of uh, narrowing of the arteries, your heart rate goes up, a whole series of, of what you like would be functional uh, system effects that would normally be healthy if they happened from time to time. But if they never switch off, you gradually end up with a damaged system. And these people ended up with what you'd call central obesity. Mm -hmm. Uh, they ended up with what we call insulin resistance, higher levels of type 2 diabetes, and essentially a bit of metabolic mayhem. So if you are under chronic psychological stress, negative psychological stresses, um, this leads to a, a sort of breakdown in your system with all sorts of things going wrong. And, and you can see this again in very clearly in people with the most severe mental stresses. What a lot of people don't know is if you are severely depressed, that you can actually develop type 2 diabetes as a result of this. It's a thing first noted in World War One, 
with mm. shell-shocked troops mm. who were constantly under bombardment, and they developed what they called, it was called neurasthenic yeah. glycosuria, I can't remember the, the first term. So, yes, the, the, the impact of chronic prolonged or, or, or negative stressors mm-hmm. uh, um, can lead to a breakdown that, if you look through the whole processes, ends up with cardiovascular disease. So the actual system is quite quite easy, well, not easy to understand, but it, it's easily understood if you, if, you, if you look into it in some detail. So and, that's and where, it, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, it's sort of like the word inflammation. If you're in an inflamed state of mind, you end up with an inflamed state of body. Um, and that's, you know, that, that there's a whole cycle of things that happen. And what, one thing we do know that happened during lockdown was uh, smoking went up. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at what's driven cardiovascular disease down since the 80s, do you think uh, there's any evidence that statins had anything to do with that? Well, there is no evidence. I've looked at paper after paper, graph after graph. In, the 19, in fact, in, during the 1960s, the rate of heart disease in, in America, the U.S. went down quite dramatically. And in fact, the, the authorities had no idea why. There were no statins then. There was mm. hardly blood pressure lowering drugs. The rate of smoking had gone down. They couldn't really find any factors. So they set up a study called the Monica study, monitoring trends in mm. cardiovascular disease. And they never came to any conclusion. They set the same study up in Europe. And what they found was that they had no answers to why the rate of cardiovascular disease was falling so dramatically during the 80s. Uh, it just did. Uh, interestingly, they, they could find no correlation between this and, and the cholesterol levels. So, I mean, if you go back to Scotland in the early 80s, which was where I was, we had the highest rate of heart disease in the world at that time. I mean, since then, that rate has, has fallen fivefold in, in you know, young middle-aged men sort of um, population. But there is no explanation for this. Uh, and when a group in Scotland decided to study the fact there's 27 factors involved in cardiovascular disease, they found that, um, again, cholesterol had no impact whatsoever on the rate of heart disease in either men or women or the rate of death or anything. Um, These studies, whilst widely available, are virtually never mentioned by anyone. In fact, the number one thing that they found that that increased the risk of of heart disease in Scotland uh, was having a high fibrinogen level which is blood clotting factor mm. second to that was smoking so mm. i mean yes there are certain factors that have come down it's like smoking has been very important air pollution reduction has been very important the reduction of toxic metals in the environment has been very important increased uh, wealth uh, uh, for most people at least until fairly recently has been very important um so so the factors that we actually uh, don't f- focus on such as blood pressure, cholesterol mm. levels, and whatever are really almost non-existently important. Mm. And the ones that are really important are the ones no one even mentions. It's it's quite extraordinary. I mean, they, they did a. We have these risk calculators, as you may be aware, mm. uh, and the one in the UK is called Q Risk Two and Three. Yes. If you look through the risk calculator, it doesn't actually have. LDL or low density lipoprotein, aka bad cholesterol, as a factor that you measure to determine cardiovascular risk. It's not even there. Just gives you some idea of how important cholesterol is. In well, it's a strange that you mention that because I'm, I'm just turning 65 and I went to my doctor 
and uh, for whatever reason, possibly to get a few, a few quaff points or whatever, yes. he wanted to test my cholesterol, which was about, I think, five and a half. Uh, my triglycerides were ridiculously low, about 0.7 or something. My HDL, uh, you know, was very, very high. And yeah. uh, I always liked that ratio between triglycerides and HDL. You may have a, a different view. Uh, and he said, right, you need to be on satins for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and, and I said, why? And he, he referred to that, uh, you know, that sort of um, nice, nice approved calculator. And he said, for a man at your age, uh, you know, you, you calculate at high risk. And I said, I have no high blood pressure, no conditions at all. And I asked him, do you know what the NNT, the numbers needed to treat, you know, for a benefit is, is for a statin, which you want me to take for the rest of my life? And he said, well, good heavens, no, I can't possibly know the NNTs for all the drugs I'm prescribing. And I said, well, I actually do know. And it's, it's fairly close to infinity. Uh, you know, for somebody like me. But um, one of the things here is if our governments are saying, you know, statins are the answer for this excess deaths, which you can get from your pharmacists, which will at least keep a little burden off the doctors. Uh, I think we've already covered that the effect that this is likely to have is zero. But the message it gives, you know, what message does that give to people? Yeah. Well, well, the message, all sorts of wrong messages, that, that essentially you need a tablet to keep you healthy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there is research that's shown that people taking statins are less likely to take exercise, are more likely to continue smoking, are less likely to do healthy things because they think they're being protected. Um, so in the real world, you know, the, the impact is, is probably going to be negative rather, rather than positive. I mean, I would say that some of the studies have shown that statins have had some benefits on cardiovascular disease, in those at higher risk, et cetera, et cetera, terms and conditions that apply. But the real world study, there was only one real world study done on taking statins, which was not done by a pharmaceutical company. It was called OHAT LLP. Uh, and, and at the end of the study, they found that taking statins had no benefits whatsoever on anything. Uh, and, and the critics said, oh, well, this study wasn't very well done because some people stopped taking statins, some people dropped out you know, et cetera, et cetera, to which I said, yes, but that's exactly what's going to happen in real life. People are not going to religiously keep taking their tablets. So this study was the one that was probably most accurately represented what would happen in real life, giving people statins. What was the end result? The end result was nothing at all. Mm -hmm. and, and so I look at study, well, you know, amazing coincidence. Only one of the major statin trials was done that was done was not by a pharmaceutical company. This one was actually run by the National Institute of Health in the mm -hmm. States. And only one of those studies has shown no benefit whatsoever. The other 39 or however many there are now all showed mm -hmm. some benefit from vanishingly small to slightly not quite so vanishingly small. So I look at I look at uh, studies like this and think, you know what? The study is the only one you need to look at, and it's the one that says statins are not beneficial. There was a study done in Europe looking at 15 countries and trying to relate statin use to reduction in cardiovascular disease, and um, that study showed no impact on a population scale across about 300 million people over a period of about 15 years. So, you know, the clinical trials themselves appear to show one thing, the, the reality on the ground is 
not well just completely irrelevant and you know and that wouldn't matter too much from my perspective if they had no adverse effects whatsoever mm. quite a lot of waste of money i suppose although taking statins it turns people into patients it's not a good from my perspective not a good thing um but if they have got a heavy burden of adverse effects which i believe that they do um then then we're really damaging the overall quality of everybody's life mm. ends of millions of people and you know i've seen enough people who come to me suffering severe adverse effects from statins that i know what they do mm. and, and and i know that the clinical trial results do not reflect the real life use of statins as they can't because is there, is there anyone in the UK health NHS government who actually thinks about a real prevention policy? Um, uh, hard to answer that. I suppose. Yes, you maybe you don't have to name names, but I remember when Derek Wanless came up with a great recommendation that the you know that the National Health Service was not a health service; it was a sort of disease management service. Yeah. Um, and and something needed to change. And I suppose another way of asking you that is as a man who spent his career working within the NHS, and while I totally respect the overload of doctors and nurses and the essential work they do on low salaries, is more money, more nurses, more doctors, more drugs ultimately going to solve the burden of disease, or is it just going to cost the nation more? Well, I think one answer to that is uh, around about 2006, seven. In, in the UK, we introduced a thing called Quality Outcome Framework, which you may have heard of. Most people have no idea it exists, although GPs can certainly tell you about it. It's um, essentially, there's a very large amount of payment, about a third of the GP's total. This is the QUOF system. QUOF, yeah, Quality yeah. Outcome Framework. Yeah. is based on reaching certain targets, lowering blood pressure to a certain degree, lowering cholesterol to a certain degree, getting blood sugar under control, measuring this, measuring that, measuring the other thing. It's a gigantic preventive medicine exercise, the biggest and highest scope ever anywhere in the world has, has been done. So Has it worked? Well, the answer is that uh, the life expectancy in the UK prior to COVID was beginning to fall. So you have to say to yourself, if we have this gigantic, enormously billions and billions of pounds, huge amount of time and effort spent on this in this preventive um, system, the, the most comprehensive that exists, and life expectancy is falling, then your primary outcome, the one you're most concerned about, is going in the wrong direction. So you'd have to say is, well, maybe there was other things that have caused this, although I have no idea what you might think they might be, because less people are smoking, there's less pollution, da -da -da. people are generally supposed to be healthier. And yet life expectancy is falling. So I think the simple answer is, well, clearly it hasn't worked, isn't working. And yet it, they've got rid of it in Scotland, by the way. Oh. Uh, in England, they still cling to this as though it is some magical thing that means that we'll all be fit and healthy. Well, sorry, guys, it ain't working, is it? Now, I heard, I'm not sure if this is true, that this POF you know, system had cost about £30 billion and something you know a big chunk of that was paying doctors more and a big chunk of that was uh you know more drug prescriptions and i heard that some doctors you know 20 percent of their salary is coming from this system no it's more than 12 it's gps 30 percent of your salary is mm -hmm. dependent on the system so every time your doctor asks you know to measure your blood pressure measure your cholesterol measure these things there 
and then lower it, which of course statins will lower your cholesterol, um, yeah. they're getting paid basically. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah. This is this is payment by target-driven uh, preventive medicine. I mean, in fact, you can't blame somebody if thirty percent of your salary is dependent on doing this. You'd do it as well, wouldn't you? Um, well, thirty percent of the income of a general practice, which is not thirty percent of your salary. If you lost thirty percent of your income for your general practice, you would have no profit at all in your in your in your general practice. Mm-hmm. You would make no money. You mm-hmm. would be working for nothing. Mm-hmm. So if you got rid of because obviously GPs employ other staff and, and yeah. they pay for this that and the next thing. So the actual so if, if say off, off the cuff, I mean just making this figure up as an example, mm-hmm. if the practice brought in a million pounds, right? Mm. of income from doing various things uh, approximately 300,000 of that would be the money that the partners would then take as their income for that year mm-hmm. if you got rid of that 300,000 then there would be no profit for the practice there would be no income for any of the partners so the reality is if you got rid of quaff tomorrow no GP would make would be would, would have a salary or they have a salary to take profits no gp would make any money and I had a, I had a, yeah i had a good example of this with um in my sort of pet subject of uh, dementia prevention where high blood pressure is a risk factor therefore why not lower it and uh, the most recent study which gave aggressive um uh, hypertensive medication to to lower blood pressure to 120 over 80 uh, you know, that's the logic and it's prevention, so to speak. Uh, it produced one less uh, case of dementia for every thousand taking the medication. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there were, I think it was 337 SAEs, serious adverse events, which means mm-hmm. death or hospitalization out of the thousand. Uh, but of course, here we have a situation where high blood pressure actually is a risk factor. Well, I think what you're saying is that even high cholesterol, you know, certainly up in the sort of probably up to six or six point five, isn't isn't actually a risk factor. We assume it's a risk factor, but I, I'm just going to stop you there. It's not a risk factor, no matter how high it is. But okay, carry on. Yeah, all right. No, no, that's good to hear. So, my final question to you is: If you were health minister, what would you do? I mean, what would you focus on? especially in this incidence of excess deaths and cardiovascular disease? Well, I mean, you, you probably know the answer is not what they're going to do. I mean, I would say, you know, let's let's open the books and have a look at it and, and do a proper review. But, mm-hmm. but don't make 50% of your research out of bounds for anyone to look at, because we have to know what's doing this. There are people, you know, this, this is a world where true conspiracy theory uh, grows, um, is if you are clearly hiding things and clearly not allowed and, and not allowing anyone to discuss something, what, what something is, this, is causing this yeah what is this hidden evidence what is it that we really need to have an objective open look at well we need to look at um well one of the things we need to look at is is um is obviously we've had a couple of very major things that happened haven't we we've had a covid19 uh, pandemic is the death rate due to this the problem with this being that you immediately run into people scurrying around and trying to not tell you how many people have been vaccinated or vaccinated or not vaccinated how many people actually had the infection or otherwise 
So you have a big kind of gray areas and, and, and no-go areas to look at, which mm. are, for instance, vaccination rates and, uh, and infection rates. And it's almost impossible to find these data out. And they're, you know, to me, it seems clear as clear that, that this stuff is actually being hidden from people to see. Uh, now, maybe there is nothing to see, but by golly, you, you, you know, why not let people, you know, are we, are we to be treated like five-year-olds who are not trusted to, to, see, to see the facts or the, or the true situation? You know, this is the exact opposite of scientific debate. This is, we know best, you can't see it, we're not going to show it to you. And anyone who cares to actually ask for the correct data is going to be hounded and, and attacked. I mean, this is like, this is just terrible stuff going on at the moment. Uh, unbelievable stuff that's going on at the moment. It's outrageous. You know, I, I have one thing that I'm interested in is trying to find the truth. And when I find that I've got big barriers and doors shut, then my natural inclination is to want to know what's behind those doors because that's where I think the answers lie. And if we keep these doors completely and firmly shut, we're never going to get the answers to what the hell is going on, are we? Malcolm, um, thank you very much. My next guest, uh, Dr. Tess Lowry, is going to talk about exactly that. Okie dokie. Nice to speak to you. Now, I'd like to address the elephant in the room, and that is the possibility that mRNA vaccination adverse effects is one of the contributors to the excess deaths and increase in cardiovascular deaths that are being reported. It's very hard for anyone employed by the state, be it a GP or MP, to address this issue, albeit purely on scientific grounds, without reprimand. So I'm delighted to have a pinnacle of evidence-based medicine, Dr. Tess Lowry, who, prompted by the COVID crisis, established the nonprofit community interest health and research company. It's called EBMC Squared, but evidence-based medicine is what it's all about in 2021 and co-founded the World Council for Health. Now, the mission statement of the World Council of Health is a non-profit initiative for the people that is informed and funded by the people, our global coalition of health-focused initiatives and civil society groups seeks to broaden public health knowledge and sense-making through science and shared wisdom. We are dedicated to safeguarding human rights and free will while empowering people to take control of their health and well-being. So, hello, Tess. Welcome back. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for having me back. Um, it's a pleasure. Last time we spoke, it was about the science of ivermectin and the treatment of COVID. The science was there, but still, I don't believe we are able to... Uh, uh, get that prescribed. Is that true? Um, yes, that is true. We're still um, really, you know, tackling the MHRA and trying to get this really cheap, effective and safe medicine made available to the public. Yes, sheep can get it, but not humans. Um, today, we are addressing any possible role or concerns about repeated COVID vaccines and especially mRNA vaccines in relation to the excess deaths and especially cardiovascular deaths that we're seeing both in the UK and abroad. But let's first get some background. Uh, what is an mRNA vaccine and why could it potentially be a problem for some? 
Yeah, well, um, an mRNA vaccine is not the same as a traditional vaccine. That's the first thing everybody should know. Um, and unfortunately, this hasn't been widely shared. An mRNA, a traditional vaccine, you get a piece of the, the virus uh, dead or attenuated, it's called, it doesn't work, it doesn't cause harm, or a piece of its protein, and it's a finite amount of viral um, substance that gets injected into the shoulder muscle, and uh, your body makes antibodies to that finite amount of, of viral material. The mRNA vaccine is something completely different. It's a technology that has never actually been work, uh, been proven to be uh, safe uh, in the context it's been used now. And, uh, and in actual fact, it, it consists of a genetic code. So it's a, it's a, a genetic code is like a recipe um, to make a protein. So instead of it being a finite amount of protein, it's a recipe that uses your body's apparatus uh, your cellular apparatus to actually manufacture uh, the viral protein. So I'm sure, you know, if uh, anyone would be thinking, well, why would I want to make a viral protein? Well, according to the manufacturers, uh, the, or the theory behind it is that um, this viral protein that your body makes generates an immune response. And then when you get exposed to the virus, your body has the immune response to fight the viral protein. Uh, there's a little flaw in the basic theory of, of this, and that is um, how much of this viral protein does it make? Well, nobody seems to know. So, so what happens? And also, does it stay in the shoulder muscle? No, it doesn't. So in actual fact, what we have is a, a, a substance that's called a vaccine. It's actually a genetic therapy. So it's it's a piece of gene code or gene codes, trillions of copies of this gene code that get injected into the shoulder muscle. Instead of staying in the shoulder muscle, their studies show that it circulates around the body very rapidly in a couple of days, hours to days, and it gets taken up by the cells of one's body. Then you have uh, trillions of cells making this, um, using the cellular apparatus to make a viral, a COVID virus spike protein. Um, your body then makes, uh, gets its T cells and antibodies to the, the spike protein. But uh, unfortunately, the spike protein is actually in your own cells. So your body makes antibodies uh, uh, that, that are then targeting the cells that are making the spike protein. And so um, it, it's really uh, far from an ideal situation because we don't know how long uh, we don't know how many copies of the spike protein it's making. We don't know how long uh, the body makes the spike protein for. And um, we don't know what happens with all this excess uh, spike protein that is made. So you said, what? why could it potentially be a problem? Well, you get, uh, firstly, you get an inflammatory reaction set up. Um, something like myocarditis, pericarditis, the itis in that word, means inflammation. So um, so you get inflammatory process set up and because any cells of the body can be making um, the spike protein and, and, um, and having this inflammation, uh, it's not just the heart that can, that can be affected by inflammation, any tissue can be affected by the inflammation. Um, 
So, uh, so it's not just so it's the protein that gets deposited, which is a problem as well. If you're making a lot of the spike protein, where is it going? If your body can't break it down quickly enough, it goes into the tissues. It goes into the lining, uh, the, the interstitial tissues of the of the blood vessels, um, and uh, and um, and equally uh, the, with the multi system inflammation, um, you get blood vessels that are uh, you know around the body that are affected. Um, that are making and um, and uh, uh, showing the spike protein and and uh, and setting up this inflammatory process, which also leads to clotting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's uh, we've seen catalogued a number of cases, probably thousands of cases now of myo and pericarditis, so that's inflammation in heart tissue, uh, as an official vaccine adverse effect. But you're pointing out that inflammation sort of post-vaccine can occur in any organ of the body. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the yellow card scheme data, the official data, you know, uh, if you type in, well, I'm not even sure you you, you can't type it in any longer um, because they're no longer making the, the data available. But anything with itis, so um, there's myocarditis, um, uh, pericarditis, uh, encephalitis, um, 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 myelitis, you know, anything with itis is, is suggests inflammation. And so, you know, that is what you're seeing. And then also um, uh, clotting and, um, and hemorrhaging. So there's a lot of clotting, bleeding, uh, ischemic kind of conditions. But if the heart's affected or the brain's affected, um, well, then it's going to be more dramatic. You know, then you're going to see uh, you, 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 you're going to see um, those. Those are the, the the places where one's more likely to see um, sudden death or death. You know, mm-hmm. um, but if it's uh, a nerve uh, or muscle, um, you know, or uh, you know, hepatitis or gastroenteritis or inflammation of the ovaries, that's going to present in a in a slower way. You know, perhaps. Uh, as infertility or autoimmune diseases, um, cancers, and so on. Now, we have, I mean, the, the sort of official number now, I think, is 50 coroner's reports where the vaccine um, has been deemed to have caused a death uh, relatively rapidly after vaccination. Uh, but, of course, what we're looking at now is a lot more excess deaths uh, at the other end of the scale, uh, one of my uh, colleagues is uh, works for an undertaker uh, here in uh, in Wales, and he says we have never seen this level of deaths, and it's across uh, you know younger age ranges as well. So the undertakers are certainly uh, uh, you know working flat out right now. So why do you think vaccination could be contributing to these? increases in deaths well um you know as i said there's um there's multi-system inflammation I, i'll just actually take you back to june 2021 uh we at ebmc squared we did a an analysis of the uk yellow card um, vaccine adverse event data at that time. And we sent an urgent report to the MHRA in June rain to say these vaccines are not fit for purpose. They are causing a lot of harm and you need to, to um, start, um, you know, preparing for for uh, for a lot of harm and ameliorating the, the, the effects. Um, and, and this was because we, we 
we looked at the data and we looked at, at, at bleeding and clotting and ischemic disorders. And we saw that the majority of deaths were coming from, from um, brain, um, uh, uh, brain clots, uh, lung clots, um, you know, pulmonary embolus, uh, uh, heart clots, cardiac arrest, and so on. Um, and, um, and, but we also saw a lot of, um, of other harms, so neurological um, uh, harms, uh, so, which, are, which are much longer, so, so a, a huge number of those. So, so there's clearly a huge amount and a huge range um, of, of nonspecific disease that's associated with these mRNA um, injections. I don't even want to call them vaccines anymore because they are so different from the normal type of vaccine. And it's that very nomenclature that has sort of uh, deceived people into thinking that they're as safe as as, as regular vaccines. Um, so, um, you know, we, we see um, many reasons, uh, many, many different types of diseases on the, on the official yellow card database that um, are just not being talked about. There's been this focus on cardiac uh, events, but uh, in fact, neurological events are far more numerous. The, the UK scheme has about 500,000 reports, so half a million reports of, um, of harms. And if you actually look at those data, most of them are serious. They give a percentage of things like 70% of the harms are serious and they are across the board. Um, there are uh, children, thousands of children who have reported, who have adverse events reported on their behalf. Um, they are, you know, it's not, um, it's not limited, as you say, it's not limited to a particular age group. In fact, the, mo the majority of adverse event reports are in the age groups um, 30 to 39, uh, but but basically that 20 to 60 um, age group is the group uh, is the group that has the hundreds of thousands of adverse event reports, and and the official narrative is that these vaccines are safe and effective, you know, um, and and nobody is talking about them. I'm no, I... so sorry for the public. Sorry, I just want to say, yes. you know, it's no one is being frank. No one is just speaking the truth. Yes, it seems very hard to, to do that these days. Uh, is there also a concern about the number of vaccinations? Because normally in a sort of regular vaccination, uh, there's a lot of learning about uh, whether you need one shot and then a booster and what the spacing is and so on. Uh, but here we seem to be, you know, into round four. I think um, there's much less uptake of the fourth booster. But is there a concern about the effects of, of multiple vaccinations? Is there any evidence of that being worse? Uh, is, the, is the benefit uh, you know, any better by continuing down this path of booster, booster, booster? What's, what do we know about that? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you about one study and, and, and the rest really just has to be common sense. I think most people know um, that they've never in their lives been told to take so many jabs in, for the same disease in such a short space of time. So I think the alarm bells ringing there anyway, most people have 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 realized there's something really odd about this new uh, vaccination regime. Um, but um, you know if you if you consider that um, each injection, gives your body this recipe to make spike protein. So it's making a spike protein. Your cells are making the spike protein. And then you have your, your 
immune system stimulated to fight this the spike protein um and and it does that and then just as it's 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 sort of starting to um to get balanced it gets another injection it, it, it gets activated again uh, so it's a constant stimulation the more injections you have it's a constant stimulation to make the spike protein and then to fight it and um, you can imagine that's quite exhausting so after a while your body uh, actually becomes exhausted uh, and so instead of increasing your immune immunity um, your immunity is focused on fighting this one thing and and your and your immune system actually becomes depleted, uh, and so when something else does come along, um, because remember your immune system is used to fight cancer as well. Um, so you get so another infection comes along, COVID comes along because COVID's been you know the 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 virus has been changing, um, uh, and and the and the vaccines haven't been adapting to the change, um, and. Um, uh, or you have a, or you have a susceptibility to cancer, or you have a, you're in remission. Um, then your immune system is, your immune system is needed to to uh, step in at all those times. And if it's busy and it's preoccupied trying to make and fight the spike protein, um, it's not going to be available uh, to protect you. So in actual fact, you get an overall reduction in the functioning of your immune system. So the more injections uh, will definitely and not protect you and will will worsen your immune system. Um, and just to say that there is a paper, um, because there's a lack of studies, there have been no studies, and this is exactly where we need to be asking our, our regulatory agencies, where have they been? What have they been authorizing these injections on? Because the evidence is not there, and there's certainly no evidence on these boosters being, being safe and, and, and effective, being rolled out more and more and more. Um, there is one study done in mice, which shows that after four injections, the overall immunity is severely um, reduced. And that's what we have to go on. So it's really unacceptable that we have no research and we have these uh, these politicians uh, and, and agencies saying uh, safe and effective, take another one um, and... and um, uh, and it really is criminal. So what do you think should be the policy of governments going forward right now? Well, they need to acknowledge the harms that they've caused by their policies because the lockdowns and everything were absolutely um, harmful to, to society, communities, individuals, and they need to repeal all of these policies. Um, they need to acknowledge that the role of natural immunity um, they need to do these. These um, they need to do the studies. Um, they need to do audits, uh, transparent. In fact, they should they should let independent organisations um, do these studies um, to to and 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 have access to the data because they they're being very um, uh, uh, they're keeping all the data to themselves. They're not sharing those data. Um, we need to we need to have access to the death rates and birth rates, etc. Um, they need to contact independent uh, professionals to to give opinion and also how to treat because so many people are injured. We need uh, we need policies on how to treat people with COVID vaccine injury. We need research into into um, people who are who are experiencing COVID injury. They need um, to be. They need financial assistance, medical assistance. Um, we need uh, public awareness campaigns. 
to tell everybody, look, this is what we found. So instead of the BBC just speaking about, um, uh, you know, um, um, the, the distractions that they do speak about, we need some real honest reporting and um, and we need awareness campaigns to, to teach people how to boost their immunity, optimize their health, um, you know, uh, and so on. So we and we need public engagement. We need we need open forums where people can express themselves, where um, both both um, uh, doctors and uh, and um and uh, people who've been injured, we need to be able to have open discussions now. So and, is that enough? No uh, vaccine passports. No, it's, That's it's, absurd. Uh, yeah, no vaccine passports. <laughs> and yes, the, the world. Um, I mean, I, I the World Council of Health uh, ha covers a lot of this. You know, what to do, how to protect yourself, uh, and we will give out the details and what you can find at that website in a minute. Uh, you mentioned natural immunity, and of course, that's what I've spent the last couple of years trying to promote uh it's literally you know a good half of your whole immune system you know there's your there's your innate natural immunity which is the first line of defense and then we have our learned or acquired immunity which is where vaccines or exposure to a virus comes in so we're talking about building your own natural immunity your own terrain so to speak we're talking about vitamin c and vitamin d and zinc and um, other such things and uh, we we actually got to the point with uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, who have a specific group called Rapid C19, whose remit is to rapidly find safe and effective uh, you know, treatments in, in this area. And they acknowledge that there are over 20 uh, uh, clinically relevant studies on vitamin C. These are the studies that we've largely sent them. And they agreed finally to circulate them to other agencies like the Department of Health, uh, we happen to get the minutes of the Department of Health's group called Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition, and they list all the papers. So, you know, these papers are not denied in any way, uh, but they are told, uh, this is the Department of Health's group, not to review them. Why? Because NICE, NICE's Rapid C19 group, it's their responsibility, and they have told us in a Freedom of Information uh, Act uh, request that they have not reviewed them. So we have government agencies sitting on uh, accepted scientific data on vitamin C, on vitamin D, on other ways to boost natural immunity, and they just are not even bothering to um, review and share that information. So we are in a shocking period of time where data is being hidden, um, and uh, I think that's awful. But the World Council of Health, uh, tell us how people can access the wonderful information uh, and, you know, get informed and in a way take responsibility, take charge of their own health. What can the World Council of Health offer people and how do they access that? Thanks very much. Well, the website is worldcouncilforhealth.org and um, you can access health uh, uh, guidance in a number of ways. And it's really, what we're really trying to do is empower people to take responsibility for their own health. So we're not saying we're the gurus. We are a grassroots organization. Ultimately, we have partners in 46 countries, um, 170 organizations and, and, and climbing every day. And it's really about find, especially in this, in this, in this field of new diseases, and new diseases associated with the vaccine injury and the need to get healthy is more important than ever. We draw on our grassroots organizations um, to inform us and we put that information forward to, to the public to do with what they will at their own 
uh, on their own, um, based on their own research. And so um, we have a, a detox guide. Um, it's been there for, for I think, almost probably around nine months or so, and it's in the process of being updated because as new information comes in, we, um, we are updating it. Um, so, and that's for people who wish to, to detox from the uh, toxic, um, the, the, the environment and the injections. Um, and, um, and also um, we have a at-home COVID treatment guide, um, but you will also find a lot of resources to do with communication, um, mental health, mind health. Uh, and we, we really want people to empower themselves and realize you know, if one thing we've learned from COVID is you can't outsource your health to the government or to your doctor or to you actually have to engage every day and and um, and uh, get into a healthy a healthy rhythm, have a strong immune system, uh, and um, yeah, and as I say, don't outsource your health to to others. Um, yeah, we have we have a number of ways you can get involved as well. There's leafleting, you know, uh, information for people about the jabs, where to go. And um, we have some um, some uh, partner organisations like UKCV Family, um, which is a, a support group for vaccine injured people, and also React Nineteen, um, which is a is a, a US based organization and with and they have a lot of resources. So you can also on the website explore the the our partners. Um, and um and the, the other thing is if you if you need um just some some uh, uh uplifting reading and, and sort of weekly guidance, um I have a, a podcast um called Test Talks um and and a Substack which is a better way to health with me. And uh, and it's really just sort of taking people on a more sort of optimistic, empowering journey to to learn learn about all the other uh, integrative health approaches. There isn't only one um, one way of getting healthy, and that's through getting diseased and then taking pills. There's a whole range of things one can do before one actually gets diseased. Uh, and so this is uh, a journey that I'm, I'm hoping people will join us at World Council for Health on. And um, and uh, really step into step away from fear of sickness and death, and and really into a, a, a healthy, better way of living. Well, thank you, uh, Tess, Doctor Tess Lowry. Very uh, a very honest and scientifically based appraisal. Thank you so much for your wisdom, uh, sharing this information, and also your courage. And I'd also like to thank my first guest, Doctor Malcolm Kendrick, uh, a GP who explains why statins are not the answer. So we have explored what's driving excess cardiovascular deaths. We've spoken about COVID mRNA lockdowns and the effects they've been having. Uh, we know that statins are not the answer. And it sounds like repeated vaccinations uh, also is not the answer. Uh, uh, and we need to strengthen and learn how to boost our own natural immunity. So thank you very much for listening.